Second Samuel, chapter 19. And it was told Joab, Behold, the king weepeth and mourneth for Absalom. And the victory that day was turned into mourning unto all the people. For the people heard say that day, The king grieveth for his son. And the people got them by stealth that day into the city, as people that are ashamed steal away when they flee in battle. And the king covered his face, and the king cried with a loud voice, O my son Absalom, O Absalom, my son, my son. And Joab came into the house to the king and said, Thou hast shamed this day the faces of all thy servants, who this day have saved thy life and the lives of thy sons and of thy daughters and the lives of thy wives and the lives of thy concubines, in that thou lovest them that hate thee and hatest them that love thee. For thou hast declared this day that princes and servants are not unto thee. For this day I perceive that if Absalom had lived, and all we had died this day, then it had pleased thee well. Now therefore arise, go forth and speak comfortably unto thy servants. For I swear by Jehovah, if thou go not forth, there will not tarry a man with thee this night. And that will be worse unto thee than all the evil that hath befallen thee from thy youth until now. Then the king arose and sat in the gate. And they told unto all the people, saying, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate. And all the people came before the king. Well, I'll just remind you that we finished off chapter 18 with David crying after he received word that his son had been killed in the battle. That he cried in such a way as we have just read Joab telling him, pointing out to him, that shamed his servants, shamed all those soldiers that had set their lives before the enemy in order to preserve the king. The question comes up, who was Joab? Who was this individual? We read about a, a lot of people in the scriptures. Their names come before us and they pass away from us and we never hear them again. Many people that are just mentioned, as I say, in passing. And Joab would almost pass away if it wasn't for this. We would think of him as uh, a soldier. But who is this man? Who is this man that is so brazen, so bold, so fearless as to come before the king and you speak to him in this tone and in this manner. Who in the world is this? Well, he, along with his brothers, Abishai and Asahel, were sons of Zeruiah. Zeruiah was a sister of David. These were David's nephews. David was the uncle of Joab. That's who Joab was, and what he became, we're going to look at a little bit. One writer put the connection between 
David and Joab with these words. He said, had it not been for David, Joab would have climbed up into the throne of Israel. All you have to do is look at the kings of, of uh, Samaria and so on and see the histories of the descendants of Jeroboam and how that they ascended unto those thrones or that throne through intrigue and murder and so on. And I believe that's what this writer likely has in mind when he says, had it not been for David, Joab would have climbed up into the throne of Israel. As it was, he stood on the steps of the throne and faced the king all his days. There's a huge difference between David and Joab, even though they're related as uncle and nephew. David, we could argue, was all heart and passion and sensibility. We just saw his passion in, over the death of his son. He was all heart and passion and sensibility. In other words, he was sensitive. And as we spoke the last week or so, this was a big problem for him in this matter. He doted. He was a doting father over his sons and especially his darling son, Absalom. David was all heart and passion and sensibility while Joab was all self-will and pride and his heart as stone. I said David was a softy, a sentimental softy last week. This writer says Joab was hard as stone and we see that he was. In virtually every activity that he engaged in, he was hard as stone. We read in the second chapter of Second Samuel about a contest, as some writers refer to it, a contest at the pool of Gibeon between the men of Abner. Abner was the one who set Saul's remaining son on the throne of his father, King Saul, Ishbosheth. And he was his captain. He was his commander-in-chief. And we, we read in that second chapter of Second Samuel about them coming together at this pool. Each with some men on either side of this pool. And Abner has to take the guilt for engaging in conversation that amounted to a challenge. Joab, send some of your men over to sport with some of my men. What he meant was to do battle with them. Single individuals in pairs fighting each other. Let's have a contest. The picture that we get in our minds reminds us perhaps of the Romans and their gladiators in putting men into contests and combat with one another for sport. Well, these men, it turns out, were so equal in their skill and their strength that they almost immediately killed each other, thrust each other through with their swords so that 24 men lay dead to satisfy Abner's challenge, to satisfy Joab's pride in sending men over. And then they engaged in a further battle and as far as we can tell, Joab defeated, his men defeated badly or goodly, depending on your perspective, the men of Abner and slew some 300 
And so Abner with his remaining men was fleeing. But they were just sporting. One writer, in fact, Matthew Henry wrote in this about this divine providence serves its own purposes by the stupidity of men at some times. I believe that that's appropriate for this. Divine providence, we'll see this if we can call it a trail of blood of sorts. That this began something of a trail of blood with regard to the men of Israel, to the followers of Abner and the followers of David through Joab. As I said, it seems like this contest was akin to gladiators. A client in, uh, similar to those batter, battles that they had in order to satisfy the lust of the crowd. We still have something of that in our day and in our nation. But Joab, beyond this, he became the chief of the host. He became the commander-in-chief of David's armies. Commander-in-chief, captain of the host of Israel. Because he responded immediately to the challenge or offer of David in 1 Chronicles 11, 4 through 7. And the tale is also told without including this offer, without including this challenge, the tale of this decisive contest or conflict uh, with David's men and the Jebusites so that David's men could take Jerusalem or Jebus that it would become the city of David, that it would become the Zion of Israel, God's holy hill. But here David made an offer. Whoever goes up and takes this hill, this city from the Jebusites, he will be chief. He will be chief among you. And it was in this that it was demonstrated to all, all the soldiers not just to the Jebusites, who, who in their horror dis discovered it, but to the men of David, that Joab had what it took to be commander-in-chief of the army of Israel. And so David, according to his promise and his offer, made Joab captain of the host. One English writer from the last century Describe Joab as the Marlborough of the Empire of Israel. Now I'm going to admit to you that when I read that, all I thought about with Marlborough was cigarettes and a man with a tattoo on the back of his hand. Yeah, I, I smoked years ago. I gave it up over 50 years ago. But that's all that came to me. I had to look it up to find out exactly what kind of a comparison this writer was making. And I found out that he was referring to the Duke of Marlborough in English history. And the Duke of Marlborough was one of the greatest military commanders and statesmen in the history of England. Victorious in the battles of Blenheim in 1704, in Romilly's in 1706, and countless other campaigns were told. Marlborough, who's, listen to this, because I think this is the comparison between Marlborough and Joab. Marlborough, whose political intrigues were almost as legendary as his military skill, never fought a battle he didn't win. 
I think that is Joab. And I agree with this writer in this comparison. Marlboro also bequeathed the world. I discovered another great military strategist and diplomat. Marlboro's name, the Duke of Marlboro's name, happened to be John Churchill. His descendant was Winston Churchill, the Prime Minister of England during World War II and, and on one occasion afterwards. But this is Joab. This is the picture of Joab. And he is hard as stone. And he's like Marlborough, his, his intrigues, his military skill, and really his ruthlessness and his determination to win at any cost. His name is mentioned 81 times in 2 Samuel. Only once in 1 Samuel, and that's just as, as being the brother of Abishai. 81 times in 2 Samuel. And yet, how much do we know about Joab? Well, the author of 2 Samuel tells us a whole lot, very much. And I submit in that ruthlessness, in that hard as stone heart of Joab's, that he was also a bloodthirsty murderer. A bloodthirsty murderer. Subsequent, subsequent to that battle, that conflict at the Pool of Gibeon, Abner, who was supporting Ishbosheth, David's uh, enemy, as it were, his, his, uh, the one who was, was challenging him for the throne of Israel, or who thought that David was the challenger. But Abner finally had it with Ishbosheth, and he came to David to make an agreement with him that he would turn over the rest of the tribes of Israel to David if he would make a covenant with him. David was agreeing to this, and Joab heard about it. Joab heard about it, and he did not take it very well. He didn't take it very well at all. And he probably assumed, and maybe correctly, that if Abner gave over the armies of Ishbosheth and brought all those other ten tribes over to David, that David might likely make Abner commander in chief instead of Joab. At any rate, he heard that Abner had had a good meeting with David and was headed back to Ishbosheth. And so he went after him. And he caught up to him. And he came up to him. And he spoke to him kindly. But he took him by the beard. And pulled him down. It slew him. Murdered him. Ruthlessly. His heart was hard as stone. Joab may have thought that he was an avenger of blood in this case. But he wasn't following the law well at all. Abner had slain his brother Asahel in that battle at the pool of Gibeon. Asahel was running after him. Asahel, whom we're told was fleet as a hind, fleet of, of foot as a deer, was running after Abner to continue the conflict with him. Abner stopped a couple of times to tell him, don't catch up to me, you won't survive. And what will I tell your brother Joab? But Asahel wouldn't have any of it. 
And he pursued and pursued until he caught up with him and Abner just struck him with the hind part of his spear. In those days, they sharpened that hind part of the spear so they could stick their spears in the ground when they were camped. And he smote him with that sharpened, hindered part of his spear and killed him. Joab may have been trying to justify murdering Abner on the basis of the avenger of blood. You remember how that when someone was slain in Israel, the Lord, through Moses, told them, told Moses to set up these cities of refuge for the manslayer, that he could flee there and then be judged. But as long as he got to that city, the avenger of blood couldn't take his life unless he was judged to be guilty of murder, which Joab would have been. But nonetheless, I'm only setting forward here the excuse that this heart of Joab may have been making for him in this murder this murder of Abner, this bloody murder. And when David found out about that, he tried to distance himself. He did distance himself from Joab. And he lamented, and he had a a grand funeral procession for Abner, a great man. And he pronounced, and we hear this when certain people in high places in the visible church pass on, that, oh, a great man has died in Israel this day. Well, that's what David said about Abner. A great man in Israel has died. And he lamented truly from his heart the death of Abner. And this is one of the first times that he makes this statement that he is forced to make more than once later on. But he says in 2 Samuel 3.39, And I am this day weak, though anointed king. That's the picture we have here. That's the picture we have when Joab comes in our, in our passage that we read at the beginning. Joab comes to confront him because David is actually weak compared to Joab. He says, this day I am weak, though anointed king. And these men, the sons of Jeruiah, are too hard for me. Too hard for the giant slayer, David. Too hard for the one who slew all those Philistines when he was a captain under Saul. Too hard for this mighty king. That's what Joab was with his brother Abishai. These men, the sons of Zeruiah, are too hard for me. Jehovah reward the evildoer according to his wickedness. I can't do it. I don't have what it takes. I can't do it. But the Lord reward the evildoer. And we see later this very same behavior duplicated. Duplicated when uh, Joab slew Amasa. When he slew Amasa. Amasa was related by blood also. This was after David was being brought back. Brought back to Jerusalem by the people they were bringing him back. And he made Amasa, who was the captain of Absalom's host. Strange things are happening here. But there's a lot of blood connection here, a lot of nepotism, a lot of intrigue. But nonetheless, in order to cement the relationship 
with those that had revolted against him in order to bring them back to, to himself in love and sincerity and truth. He makes Amasa to be the captain of the host. Amasa was also David's nephew as Joab. Amasa was a son of, of his sister also. David made him captain of the host. And the important words in that verse are in the room of Joab. We're learning that you don't want to be in the room of Joab because he's going to take you out. And that's precisely what he did with regard to Amasa, his cousin. It's not a good place to be standing in Joab's way, to standing in the way of a jealous, a revengeful man as Joab. Joab was a bloodthirsty man. He was commander-in-chief. He was a bloodthirsty man. He was also a plotting politician. We need to be thankful that we don't have any difficulties with plotting politicians in our country in our day. Joab was a plotting politician, and I can't discover what his motives were. They don't seem to be told us what his motive earlier on in bringing Absalom. You remember when Absalom had killed his brother Amnon because Amnon had raped his sister Tamar, that is Absalom's sister Tamar, Amnon's half-sister, that Absalom waited for two years waiting for his father David to do the right thing and to deal with Amnon for what he had done, how he had disgraced and humbled his sister Tamar. David didn't do it. Finally, Absalom took the law into his own hands and he killed his brother Amnon. And he fled. And he was gone a few years with his mother's family. I believe it was in Geisha. He was, he was in captivity, as it were. He was, he was set outside of Israel because of that murder Joab wanted to bring him back. I, I said, I don't know why. I'm not sure what Joab's motives, but from what we have seen even now of Joab, the political intrigue and so on. And we know that Joab was selfish and self-willed. And, and it's easy to assume and likely that he had some kind of a plan where he was going to ascend somehow through Absalom to the throne, so he brought him back and he used political intrigue, he used a device even similar to, to how God directed Nathan to come and, and, and rebuke David about his sin with Bathsheba. You remember the parable that Nathan set before him of the, of the man with one, just one little ewe lamb. Well, Joab found this woman of Tekoa and he told her what to tell the king and he, and he put the words in her mind that she have, would have them in her mouth to speak to David about this only son that she had that had killed his brother. He set up this parallel plot. And David evidently, even as with Nathan's parable, he didn't see that it was about him. And he promised this woman that he would protect her son from having his life taken. And she basically, to paraphrase, she said, well, what about your son? 
Why don't you bring him back? And David submitted and did. He let him come back, but he told him where he could go and stay, and he will not see my face. Of course, that didn't satisfy Absalom. So again, he reached out to Joab for some help to make a connection, to reconnect with David, to see the king's face. Joab ignored him, probably realized his mistake in bringing him back. He ignored him. Absalom set his field of barley on fire. That got his attention. So he came over and said, what are you up to? And Absalom told him what he wanted. So Joab took him to the king, and the king saw him. And we've already explained how great David's love for Absalom was. And when he saw him, he kissed him. And that set set into action all this intrigue of Absalom about taking over the throne of his father and killing his father. But Joab was this plotting politician involved in these things. I don't know what he had in mind, but we can be sure of one thing, that it was for Joab's benefit. So here he comes in this portion that we've read in chapter 19, these first eight verses, in what I've called Joab being the reprover in chief. Only Joab could get away with talking to David like that. Only Joab. Not just because he was a skillful soldier, a skillful commander-in-chief, but because David was afraid of him. That's amazing, isn't it? I, I thought about this for some time. David could say, take that man out and kill him. And yet he feared Joab. It seems conspicuous. But I think there's another reason that Joab could get away with talking to David in this manner. Because Joab knew what David had done regarding Uriah. Do we have trouble dealing with people that know the history of our sin? We do, don't we? Even if they've been forgiven, even after they've been forgiven, there still remains this difficulty. And David knew Joab was an accessory in Uriah's murder. David made him an accessory in Uriah's murder. He has something. He's holding something over David's head. God is not limited in any way in his will to get his message across to man. To his own people. He can and does use any individual, anything that he pleases to use to communicate his will, his mind to his people. And in this, 2 Samuel 19, Joab was God's chosen mouthpiece. Joab is here God's pawn to checkmate King David to checkmate his inordinate grief that would bring the whole nation down if he didn't straighten himself up. God used Joab. God used this wicked man. Does he ever use wicked men to bring his will to pass? He used Pilate, didn't he? He used Herod, didn't he? He used Judas, didn't he? He uses whatever he wishes to bring about his will, even though Joab cared not for the things of God, as far as we can tell. 
Jehovah may still and does use him to bring about his purposes. We can be and likely have been rebuked at some time by an unbeliever. Do you have any experience of that? Being rebuked by an unbeliever? And the unbeliever is right? And God uses him. I was told an account of a young man who was an engineer His name was Chuck, he doesn't, he doesn't worship here. But his name was Chuck and he was Italian. <laughs> and he was an engineer and he had a luncheon with a salesperson and the foreman of the general stores was, because he was involved in the purchase, was at the luncheon as well. And this young engineer was a believer, still is. And as they were served their lunch, Chuck asked this foreman, who he knew was claimed to be an atheist, and this other salesman, who he had no reason to believe was a Christian, he asked if it would be all right with them if he prayed God's blessing on the food. They said, sure. So he prayed. They ate their lunch. Chuck didn't eat his peas. This man's name was Bernie, this foreman of the general stores. He said, Chuck, you didn't eat your peas. Chuck said, I don't like peas. I don't know if it's a Sicilian habit or what. Chuck says, I don't like peas. And this man, this unbeliever, this declared atheist says, but you ask God to bless them. Chuck ate his peas. But you see how God can use unbelievers. He can use heathen to bring about his purpose. Sometimes God makes use of a rough hand to arouse us from our lethargy, one wrote. And we should be thankful that he cares sufficiently for us to do so. He's not going to leave us alone. He'll use whatever man or woman, child that he wishes to do in order to bring us around. A wise man will seek to profit from good advice. No matter who may offer it or how unkindly it may be given, a wise man will give attention to good advice. And a Christian will give attention considering that this might be the word God is speaking to me through this instrument. Matthew Henry said, when we are convinced of a fault, we must amend Though we are told it by our inferiors and indecently or in heat and passion, listen. God may use someone like that to correct us as he's using Joab here to correct David. You remember how Pharaoh corrected Abraham when he told a lie about Sarah being his sister. And later Abimelech reproved him for the same lie that he told him. And another Abimelech had to rebuke his son Isaac. And here God is using Joab to correct David. In Isaiah, Cyrus is referred to by the Holy Spirit, by God as my shepherd. Nebuchadnezzar is referred to by God as my servant. 
These are God's servants. He uses them. He uses Pharaoh. He uses Abimelech. He uses Joab. One suggested that Joab spoke to David like a Dutch uncle. Something else I had to look up. In a, in a dictionary of phrase and fable, in a dictionary of phrase and fable, the use of the phrase talk like a Dutch uncle meant that someone was being given a severe reproof since an uncle's rebuke was something to be respected. This is evidenced, this writer said, by the Latin classics and onward. And he said, as far as the history, since the rivalry between England and Holland had created the situation where anything Dutch was seen as something hateful, a Dutch uncle was one whose comments were to be respected while being nonetheless more strict and caustic than those of an uncle from other countries. Joab was being a Dutch uncle. Ironically, David was the uncle. But Joab was being the Dutch uncle in this conversation. And he was being used to correct his uncle David in this harsh and severe manner. I've already suggested this. I'll repeat it. I believe it bears repeating. We may have our own Joabs. We may have our own Joabs. Friends, neighbors, family that know something of our sinful history. We may have these Joabs in the shadows of our lives. We may have these Joabs lurking over us. We may have these Joabs standing behind us, being a reminder of the sins that they know we committed, driving us to our knees again in repentance. Even though God, we know God has forgiven them, even as David was told by Nathan, God has forgiven you. Yet Joab is holding this over him. And we probably have our Joabs. We've confessed our sin. God's forgiven. But these Joabs remind us because they were tools that we used perhaps like Joab to have our way as David used Joab. Because of our willful sins. Were we not adding? Were we not adding by these willful sins? Were we not adding to the nails that pierced our Savior's hands? Were we not adding to the nails that pierced our Savior's feet? Were we not adding to the sharp pieces of metal on the, on the whip that, that was used to tear our Savior's flesh off his bones? This is what David, I'm suggesting, is facing as Joab is bringing him to his senses. But he's listening Quietly, patiently, because Joab has something over him. We read in 1 Kings 15, 5, this always amazes me. Because David did that which was right in the eyes of Jehovah and turned not aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Are you kidding me? How is that in the word? How is that in the word? Where, where the Holy Spirit says David did that which was right. Didn't turn aside from anything that God commanded him. All the days of his life except for that matter of Uriah. Doesn't even mention Bathsheba. Of course that would be included in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. But we know it's recorded. Other sins of David. Numbering the people. Other sins of David is guilt. His folly, 
And yet, God the Holy Spirit says David did that which was right. That's incredible. That would be unbelievable if it wasn't for the gift of faith that God has given his people. And I believe that caused David most likely to write this psalm. Just these few verses from 103. Surely Jehovah is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us after our iniquities. Isn't that what 1 Kings 15 is saying? In, in, in ignoring all these things? For as far as, as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward them that fear him. What? As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. So far. How far is the east from the west? He has cast them into the depths of the deepest sea. He doesn't look on them anymore. He doesn't bring them back to us. These Joabs may, but God doesn't bring them back to us again. How great a love our Father has for us. How great a love our Savior. How, how did he remove our transgressions from us as far as the east is from the west? Did he not in some mysterious way remove his darling son from himself? In some mysterious way, I say, did he not provide the Lamb of God to take away the sins of his people? And we read in, we read in, in uh, Proverbs 8, those words, then I was by him and I was daily his delight. Rejoicing always before him. Jesus was daily his delight in some mysterious way. He sent him to save us. He parted with him in some mysterious way for a time. David wasn't willing to part with his son, but God was willing to part with his. That's how great his love is for his people. And that's what we're, that's what we're observing. That's what we're remembering at his table. That unspeakable love that God gave his son that Jesus laid down his life that Jesus took it up again for us and that he stands at God's right hand even now ever living to intercede for us here O oh my Lord I see thee face to face by the gift of faith the precious gift of faith we may see through eyes of faith our Lord Jesus Christ, hear what I touch and handle things unseen. Let us pray. Our Father, help us now to approach thy table in true faith. We would even pray, O Lord our God, that thou would increase our faith mightily. Increase it. Even as the apostles, thy disciples, Lord, cried unto thee, Lord, increase our faith that we might see Jesus. O Lord of God, have mercy upon us and help us, we pray.